Father in heaven, last week, this week, and the next couple weeks, we are looking at what we call words that surround Easter, last week of your life here on earth. These words matter. They really do. I don't know that we spend enough time looking at them, and so that's what we're wanting to do right now. But I'm asking that you help us do it by opening up the eyes of our heart and our minds and our souls and allowing us to see what we need to see. Would you challenge us with words that we're familiar with in new ways? Show us things that maybe we've seen or never seen before. And Lord, we promise to give you the glory for it as we learn and as we grow, as we experience you. Thank you for being in this place with us. Your presence means everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just jump right into this. Have you ever met a person that everyone seems to be drawn to? Maybe you go to a party and they walk in after you do and crowds form around them. Folks are just drawn to them. I'm not talking about the person that wants to be the center of attention and works hard to get there. I'm talking about somebody that doesn't want to be the center of attention but finds themselves there time and time again. You ever been around somebody like that? Psychology actually has a term for it. They would teach that they have a magnetic personality. Folks are just drawn to them. Here's the actual definition of that. People with magnetic personality exude a palpable sense of self-confidence and positive energy. Others are instinctively drawn to them because of this nearly indescribable quality. If you've ever been around somebody with a personality like that, you know exactly what we're talking about. If you had walked and talked during the days of Jesus and had the privilege of getting into his presence, you would have experienced a personality just like that. Everywhere he went, crowds just seemed to build. That's the way it was for the last three years of his life. Didn't make sense to anybody. They couldn't figure out how it was happening. But Jesus had opportunity after opportunity to teach and to share who he was. He had this beautiful, wonderful, magnetic personality that drew people in. And once they got there, they were changed. Let me show you just one example of that. This is found in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus is gathering together the disciples, the 12 that would go with him for the three years of his public ministry and then carry the church on, all except one. Of course, that was Judas. Here's how he would gather them. He would walk up. They would be drawn to him. He would invite them to follow him, and they would. One of them was named Philip. He went out and found another fellow named Nathaniel. Nathaniel has the perfect illustration, or his story is the perfect illustration of how this worked. Listen to what happens. John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now listen to Nathanael's response. Nazareth, can anything good come from there, Nathanael asked? Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That's how fast it happened. It was almost instantaneous. It took just a few moments from the time people were drawn to Jesus to them becoming believers. 
Nathaniel's the perfect example of how it played out time and time again. He moved from the realm of skepticism, can anything good come from Nazareth, to believer like that. Truly, you are the Son of God. That's how it worked with Jesus. His personality captured people. Now, if you could take that personality and tie it together with a brand new type of teaching that he brought, you could understand how the church has been unstoppable for nearly 2,000 plus years. Well, not nearly, has been 2,000 plus years. Unstoppable because of this magnetic personality that still draws people to him and unconventional teaching. Now, here's what I mean by that. Prior to the teachings of Jesus, the Hebrews would find themselves at the synagogue or even a few of them in the temple where they would go to worship. The rabbis, the teachers, would stand up before them, open up the Old Testament, the book of the law, and they would read from it. That's exactly what they would do. So it would sound like this. Maybe they would turn to the book of Leviticus, and for the next hour or two, if that might be what they wanted to do, they would just read. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as your possession, and I put a spreading mildew in a house in that land, the owner of the house must go and tell the priest, I've seen something that looks like mildew in my house. The priest is to order the house to be emptied before he goes in to examine the mildew, so that nothing in the house will be pronounced unclean. After this, the priest is to go in and inspect the house. He is to examine the mildew on the walls, and if it has greenish or reddish depressions that appear to be deeper than the surface of the wall, the priest shall go out of the doorway of the house and close it up for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall return to inspect the house. If the mildew is spread on the walls, he is to order that the contaminated stones be torn out and thrown into an unclean place outside the town. He must have all the inside walls of the house scraped, and the material that is scraped off dumped into an unclean place outside the town. Then they're to take other stones to replace these and take new clay and plaster the house. And he would go on and on and on. Could you imagine a couple hours of that? Then he would roll up the scrolls, put them away, and a few of the rabbis would add some of their own teaching to it, but more often than not, they would just put those scrolls away and everybody would go home. That would be the end of the service. They read from the Old Testament law, let it stand. Now, I'm one who believes in the power of the Word of God. I really do. But if you were to stand and listen to the reading of the Old Testament, hour after hour after hour might make it a little difficult to want to go back week after week after week. And that's exactly the way it was. Then Jesus came on the scene. He brought a brand new type of teaching. He taught through stories. He taught through personal application He taught words that they could have never imagined, ideas that they never thought possible. He captured their attention from the very beginning because Jesus made everything personal. Like this, he was preaching up in the northern part of the kingdom in the region of the Sea of Galilee. It's an agricultural area. It was then, and if you go there today, it is a lush, beautiful agricultural valley. Even the mountainsides are full of croplands. It is absolutely stunning in the way it looks. And all of the people that live there have invested their lives in making it that way. That was true even during the days of Jesus. So when he wanted to teach them up in that part of the country, he would use agricultural illustrations like this. This is found in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. 
Such large, large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on the good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, can you imagine the crowd as they listened to that? They were used to the reading from the book of Leviticus, the reading from the Old Testament scrolls. Now, here's this new teacher out in a boat speaking back to the shore where they were all assembled, no scroll in hand, nothing in front of him, and that's what he shares with them. Touched them right where they lived. It got their attention. I could see their heads shaking as Jesus is laying all of this out for them so that they would think, boy, that, that's really good stuff. He knows what he's talking about. Scatter the seed in this area, it's going to grow. Scatter the seed in this area, birds are going to come and eat it up. Scatter seeds in this area, thorns will choke it out. But you put it in good soil, it'll grow. What they didn't know is that there was deeper teaching than just how to plant good crops. The disciples would say, why? Why, why did you use that illustration? Why, Jesus? I, I don't understand. Why would you go that direction? And Jesus would explain it to them. Listen to this, starting in verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown among the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. That was the teaching behind it. That's what he wanted all of them to learn, and the disciples figured that out. What they discovered was that if you want to really grow in the kingdom of God, it is necessary for you to be in fellowship. It is necessary for you to be in worship. It is necessary for you to be in study, always growing in the things of God, and that's how you grow deeper. Those are your roots. So Jesus used this personal application, this agricultural application, to capture their attention, to make them think a little bit. And then he applied it. He was a good preacher. He was a great preacher. That type of teaching was brand new to them. Now, those that teach preaching, those that teach communication, will very often teach that anyone that wants to preach effectively needs to understand the power of the introduction and the power of the conclusion. If you really invest in those two things, you're investing in the takeaways, the things that people are going to take with them after the message is over. Jesus understood that long before anybody ever started teaching it. I want to show you one of his introductions that had to have captured everyone's attention. We're still in the book of Matthew. This one is in chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Tina and I have been to the very place where he shared these words. It's a gorgeous hillside. They would refer to it as a mountain, but we're from Montana, so we'll call it a hillside. 
The area around it is absolutely beautiful. It's up in the northern part of the kingdom, right around the, the Sea of Galilee as well, or in that region. People had come to hear what this new preacher, this new rabbi and teacher had to say. Remember that magnetic personality had drawn them to where he was at. And he preached the only recorded sermon of his in all of the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. That's the only sermon we have. Now, there were other lessons that are recorded in the New Testament, but this is the only sermon that Jesus ever preached. By the way, if you were to read it beginning to end, it takes 17 minutes. That's the only problem I have with it. It was too short. Here we go. This is verse 3. His introduction to the message. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He had their attention. He has ours to some extent. Because we hear things like that and we think, well, that's the, the Beatitudes as they're recorded in the Bible. This is how people are supposed to be and there's a blessing attached to it. But folks, that's not what that passage means. If you pull out the word blessed and you interpret it according to the original languages, you will interpret that word as happy. Happy. Jesus is standing in front of them now preaching a message and this is the introduction to his message preaching to them that they can be happy if they go the exact opposite direction of the world. Listen to that passage again with the real translation of it. Happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And listen to this one. Happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That makes no sense. So you know they were drawn to the personality and now here's this teaching that goes the complete opposite direction of everything they've ever thought, everything that they've ever been taught. They have to be wondering to themselves, what is this guy talking about? Can people really be happy if they do that? Can people really find satisfaction in life if that's the way they live? Not living for themselves, but living for something totally different? Happiness becomes possible through this type of teaching? Really? Blessed? Really? That doesn't make sense. Folks, what you have to understand is that Jesus was teaching upper story things right here. Now, if you weren't with us a few weeks ago, that probably makes no sense to you, so let me explain this to you. There's the upper story in life, and there's the lower story. The lower story is the temporal things that we have to do to get by. That's how we pay our bills. That's us going to work. That's us driving kids to soccer practice. It's all temporal. It's the immediate. The lower story is survival. The upper story is a whole brand new way of living where we find the purpose that God has in store for us, where we find something much larger than everyday living. The upper story is where God is at. The temporal God comes down into and he cares about, but the upper story is what he's directing us to all the time. And this is upper story teaching. 
He wants everybody to hear this. If you really want to find happiness, then here's how to do it. Change everything about how you've been thinking. Change everything that you've been taught, he says to these Hebrew people. Change everything. Live differently and you will find a different life. An upper story life that overshadows the lower story. The eternal will always overshadow the temporal. Live in the eternal. Live the upper story, Jesus is teaching them. It is interesting to me that they would hear this and not long after it, they would use the same word to describe Jesus. As he was descending from the Mount of Olives through the Lion's Gate, the east gate of the city of Jerusalem, as he was coming in in the triumphal entry, going to the last week of his life, they would use this same word, this same idea that he had taught. Blessed happiness when you're doing something that most people can't understand. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11, verse 9. Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Crowds have gathered. And this is what the Bible says. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Now let's stop there for just a second. If you weren't with us last week, you probably don't know this. We're doing a study, just a four-week study on the words of Easter. And we focused on Hosanna last week, which in the original languages means save now. That's this banner that's right behind us. Hosanna, save now. So they're yelling, save now, shouting out, save now. They know who Jesus is. They've been waiting for a Messiah. They've needed a Savior, and here he comes. They're shouting, save now. You're the Savior, the one we've been waiting for, and listen to what they say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Happy is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now. Happy is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Happy is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Save now in the highest. These are their words that they're shouting in worship as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. And they've grabbed the same word that he would use in the Beatitudes, this word blessed, happy. They'd read from the scrolls of Isaiah. They knew what had to happen to the Messiah. They knew where he was headed. They may not have had all the details in front of them, but they knew it wasn't going to be good. And they said he was happy. Happy is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Happy is he who is coming to restore everything. Happy is the Savior. Jesus wouldn't deny it. He wouldn't stop them and say, really, I don't think you ought to use the word blessed. Instead, he let them shout those words because he was happy to do what he was doing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you really want to understand that, we need to take just a minute or two and explore what happiness really looks like. For a lot of people, happiness is all about the pursuit of some external things. They want a new car. Some people want a new spouse, new husband, new wife. Some people just want a spouse, husband or wife. Some people want children. Other people want a a different job or a promotion in the job that they have. More money, more toys, more things. All of that would make them very, very happy. At least in their mind, that's what they think. That would make us happy. Dr. Henry Cloud has a great teaching that says every bit of that leads to unsustainable happiness. It is impossible for external things like that to bring about any kind of sustainable happiness. And he says that for at least three reasons. Number one, 
Those external things do not have the ability, the inherent ability to satisfy us. They just don't have it. In his teaching, he would say, because those external things make up only 10% of the whole idea of happiness. External things only cover 10%. We'll come back to that in just a minute. He would go on to say that after we realize that those things do not have the inherent power to make us happy, we have to realize that they also don't last. They just don't last. The joy that you get from some new purchase or new change will not stay with you. A lot of you know how that works. The psychological explanation for that is called the hedonic treadmill. I would explain it to you, but I don't understand it. and It makes my head hurt to even think about it. So I'm not going to go into that. It's just called the hedonic treadmill. Trust me in this and trust Dr. Cloud in this. What it really means is that external things cannot last. And the happiness that comes from them cannot last. So he goes on to say, once we understand that they don't have the power that they don't last, then we have to understand this. When we are pursuing those external things, it means that we're ignoring the things that could really make us happy. Now, Dr. Cloud goes on to say that if you want to understand all of that, it's necessary for you to get into what he refers to as the mathematics of happiness. This is really good. You already see the 10% that's up here. That 10% is represented by those external things, the pursuit of the new job, the new toys, the new car, the on and on and on and on. That is 10% of the overall happiness that anybody is ever going to experience. 50% of your happiness comes from your internal makeup, according to Dr. Cloud. That's the genetics That's the way you were raised. That was the environmental influences that you experienced when you were very young. Your internal makeup determines 50% of your happiness. Personality is found right there. But watch this third section. 40% comes from the things that he refers to as direct control. The things that you think about. The places that you let your mind come to rest. The things that you allow to govern your life. The things that you do by choice, you have direct control over these things. By the way, for people that wrestle with chronic depression, the mathematics of happiness gives you a whole new perspective. A lot of people will spend all of their effort trying to change the 50%. That's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult. And other people will believe that the 10% will govern it. Well, mathematically, you can look at that and say that just doesn't happen. It's the 40% that changes it because you have control over that. You get to determine what you're going to do with that 40%, where you'll let your mind come to rest. He has some great teaching about this that could really help a lot of people change the course of a depressive life if they would simply look at the mathematics of it. Where am I investing my time? Where am I investing my energy? Where am I investing everything? The Bible would teach that in the realm of the 40%, this is what we need to do. This is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul writes these words. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now that's really good teaching. That comes directly from the Apostle Paul as he says, if you want to change your mindset, here's how you do it. 
You let your mind come to rest on the things of God. Whatever is praiseworthy, let that capture you. From the beginning of the day until the day is over, let that capture you. That's your choice. That's your choice. Now that's what makes it possible for people to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what made it possible for the Jews to say, Happy is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because are you ready for this? Jesus coming to the earth. Jesus hanging on the cross. Jesus dying and going to the grave was his choice. That's why he could be happy about it. That's why they could see it in such a totally different realm because Jesus chose to do this. That was part of the 40%. It was all his doing. When we realize that, it changes everything for us. Here's what you will find. When Jesus chose to do that, He chose it because of you. Jesus chose it because of you. You trace all that out, all of his happiness out, that's where you'll end up every time. Jesus chose this because of me. That's pretty fantastic. And that's why he was so happy to do it, because of you. There are at least three different times towards the end of Jesus' life where he could have stopped the crucifixion. Three different times where he was given opportunity to say, nope, that's not the truth and I'm not going to go on with it. In each of those situations, he chose the exact opposite. He chose to power on through it. Let me show you just one of those in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest, He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? I love this, verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. I want you to journey with me into the realm of my opinion for just a minute. This is not biblical. This is just my opinion. The Bible doesn't say this, nor does it teach it. Please understand that, my opinion. You can have your own about this. This is just my thoughts. Most of us would believe that as the high priest was questioning Jesus, he would have sat there with his head in his hands, just kind of like this, downcast look on his face, almost depressed. I do not believe that's the case at all. In my opinion, I think Jesus was looking back at him with a bit of a smile on his face. I believe his eyes were bright as he looked at him. They weren't downcast. They were bright as he's looking back at the high priest. Maybe even the the corners of his lips were turned up a little bit as he looked back at him. They're bringing all these accusations against him. They want him to refute them, and Jesus isn't doing it. He isn't stopping them. I think he's looking right at them, and I think he's smiling. Let me show you why I think that. Let's go into the next verse. The high priest said to him, I charge you under the oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's getting irritated. He's getting upset. I charge you under oath. You better speak up right now. Now, if that was in today's age, we might have heard him say, you better wipe that smirk off your face and answer me. Jesus does. 
Yes, it's as you say, verse 64, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Now here's what really happened here. Jesus forced them to jump out of the lower story into the upper story. You've got to quit thinking like this. Let me show you what the upper story is all about. And he showed them the upper story and they couldn't handle it. High priest tore his clothes. He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face, struck him with their fist. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Phil's opinion, what they were trying to do, was get the smile off his face. Because happy is he who comes in the name of the Lord because of us. Because of us. And the reason he could be happy was knowing what he was about to do. How he was about to change everything for every one of us. That's the reason he could be happy about this. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Let's go to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 8. Some of you have heard me do this before. It bears repeating. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary, listen to this, for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Now let's do a little work with some words again. We're going to pull out the word gospel. Hopefully you know this. The word gospel actually means good news. To understand that, you have to understand what that good news is. John chapter 3, verse 16 would teach it this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you were unable to do on your own, which is change your condition before God, Jesus would do by coming and dying on the cross. The gospel says that his blood would cover your sins and he would change your standing with him, with God. That's the good news or the gospel. Then we have this word blessed that we've already said is actually translated happy. So I want you to read the last part of that section with me again with those changes. And for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the good news, the glorious good news of the happy God which he entrusted to me. Now, if you're a note taker in your Bible and you like to write things in there, I'd encourage you to make those changes because it shows you something deeper in that passage. This is the glorious good news, the glorious gospel of the blessed, happy God that he would do for you what he has done. And if you don't know what that is, I want you to hear this. This is Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death 
so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Folks, that's what he did for us. He gave us an eternal inheritance, but even before that, he set you free. Something you were unable to do on your own, he set you free, and he gave you this hope of heaven. Why was Jesus happy? That's it. Because it leads, that word, that whole exploration leads to you every time, and he knew what he would do for you. He would set you free and give you an eternal inheritance. For the people that have figured that out, something pretty amazing has happened for them. They've had their view of God enlarged. They've had their view of God stretched. Most of them move from the lower story to the upper story. and They see something brand new. A lot of people make their way through this world believing that God is a judgmental God just waiting to bring condemnation on mankind. They believe that He sits on a throne with a giant lightning bolt or a hammer ready to smash us. But for people that understand all of this, their view of God enlarges and they see something new. They see something brand new. And it takes a large view of God to deal with the issues that we have to in life. People have large problems. People have large worries. People have huge questions. Those things are not taken care of by a small God. They are taken care of by an enlarged God where we can look and say, He cares about me. He loves me. He's willing to be involved with me. He's willing to set me free. And He's willing to give me an eternal inheritance. That's a great thing. This whole idea of blessed being happy ties us back to the etymology of the idea of it is more blessed to give than to receive. Parents teach that to their children when they're really young. It comes directly from the Bible. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. But when you're really small, that doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense at all. Try to teach that to a four-year-old right around the time of their birthday. It is more blessed to give. You'll be happier if you give than you will be if you're receiving things. Try that on Christmas Eve. This year, we're not going to give you gifts. We're just going to give everything away. A lot of four-year-olds are going to struggle with that. I'll be honest with you. When I was four years old, I would struggle with that. At 40, I would have struggled with that. Because I like to receive. I like to get. But now that I understand the whole idea of this, it's caused a philosophical change with me. I am no longer going to collect guns. Not at all. Not at all. Instead, what I have done is start a new collection for my wife. Because it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so I think to myself, this is going to be wonderful as she starts growing her own collection of firearms and I'm going to give them to her. Birthdays, Christmas, anniversary, Valentine's Day, baby, it's going to be good. And you're going to be blessed and I'm going to be blessed. And she's got her eyes on a new waterfowl shotgun right now. I cannot wait, cannot wait for her to realize the happiness of having that and for me to get the blessing of giving it to her. It's going to be wonderful. That's how Jesus approached it. It was much more blessed for him to give than to receive because of what he gave you. For people that have their view of God enlarged that way, they find a whole new purpose in worship. Have you ever wondered what worship is? The Bible defines it this way. Psalm chapter 34, verse 3. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That's worship. When we glorify the Lord together and we exalt His holy name, that is worship. And we do that in all kinds of different ways when we come together. 
But what you may not know is that the face of Christians does it all the time. For people that have had their view of God enlarged, there's something about the way they look that communicates that message. The Bible actually teaches that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here's the teaching of the Bible. When your view of God is enlarged because of what Jesus did for us and what He was happy to do for us, your face shows it. It begins to reflect the very glory of God, the happiness of God. It helps other people worship. I had that illustrated in a big way for me this past week. James Neme sent this video clip to me. It's really good. I'd seen it before and then had the privilege of seeing it again this week, and I thought that illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. This is Carrie Underwood and Vince Gill, two very committed Christians that are singing with an audience of other performers in front of them. And I wasn't so interested this time in seeing what Carrie Underwood and Vince Gill were doing on the stage. I was enthralled with watching the faces of those in their audience. And I want you to see this from beginning to end, the changes that happen. Take a look at this.
doesn't really matter to me what Ray Brossman said last week about the God-given gift of country music. That was good stuff. That was good stuff. I lo- Amen. <laughs> Loved watching the changes in the faces of those that were in the audience as they had their view of God enlarged. As they watched two other people that had given their lives to Christ worship, they followed suit and their faces reflected it. Did you see what happened before the song was even over? They were giving God a round of applause. You might think that was for Vince Gill and and Carrie Underwood, and some people might be right in that, but it sure seemed to me that they were applauding the message that they were hearing. They were applauding God for what he had done. It's the same thing that happened at the triumphal entry as people surrounded Jesus as he was riding that donkey, and, and they were shouting, Hosanna, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want to invite you to follow suit with those that were just worshiping there and stand with me as we say together, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then we will just give God a round of applause. Are you ready? One, two, three. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.